0: You are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Modern Art in the Maghreb series and was recorded on May 6, 2021 via Zoom. This is part of a larger Council of American Overseas Research Centers program financed by the Andrew Mellon Foundation that seeks to collaborate with local institutions for a greater awareness of art historical research in North Africa. In this episode, Suhaila Takesh, curator at the Barjeel Art Foundation, talks about Curating Modern Art from North Africa and West Asia, Methodological Conundrums and Contentions of Language. To see related slides, please visit our webpage www.themagreppodcast.com
1: Thought I would give you a very brief introduction to the Bergil collection uh, prior to beginning the, um, the conversation on methodology, just for those who might not be familiar with the, uh, with the collection or the foundation. Um, so essentially, what it is is a nonprofit. Um, organization that centers around a collection of modern and contemporary art from, broadly speaking, North Africa and West Asia, but also uh, from the Arab diaspora internationally. So. It contains work from the from the 20th and the 21st centuries, and uh, it first began as a kind of private endeavor of uh, the collector Sultan Saud al-Qasimi, who is from Sharjah in the UAE, um, and, you know, he began collecting in his 20s uh, sort of Uh, almost as a hobby at first, um, just kind of uh, storing things uh, and objects in in his house. And it was only in the early 2000s that he began thinking about possibilities of opening up the collection to the public and sort of the benefits and the practical (laughs) considerations that would go into that. So at the moment, the collection as such does not have a physical home um, in the sense that there isn't a museum building or a gallery where it is permanently housed. I mean, of course, we have our storage facility, the warehouse in Sharjah, but there isn't, a, you know, I'm talking about sort of a display uh, space. Um, although for the past few years, we've had this agreement with the Sharjah Art Museum to, to have a wing of the museum building to house part of the uh, modern holdings of the collection, which is where it is um, it is housed now until at least 2023. Um, But our strategy in the past couple of years has been to really uh, work on collaborative projects where we would uh, work with other institutions on either co-curating exhibitions or inviting an external curator to work on shows and then that other institution would host the actual objects. So for instance, here you see a picture of a show uh, from 2017 at the Yale University Art Gallery in New Haven, where some of the the, the foundation's modern objects are on display. Um, now, when most people think of Virgil, they don't necessarily associate it with contemporary art, although it actually does comprise um, quite a large portion of the collection. Um, As you can see here in this picture from 2016, um, which is a shot from an exhibition at the Whitechapel Gallery. Um, It was a series of four exhibitions curated by Omar Khulev, sort of in in rough uh, terms, tracing the development of art from the modern to the contemporary. But in recent years, the focus has indeed shifted more towards the 20th century, um, and particularly towards that moment between the 50s and the 70s, where, um, of course, you know, it's a moment of decolonization, but also um, a lot of projects of modernism, industrialization, uh, governments are changing. And so both the collecting in terms of acquisitions, has been more geared towards that direction uh, lately, as well as the research direction of the foundation. So I will speak today on sort of the methodologies and the challenges of methodologies in curating art from the region and questions of terms and the language and how we speak about this art. And I will um, do this through two exhibitions uh, that we can use as case studies to, to or lenses you know to to view these uh questions through but i will uh probably be speaking more towards curatorial practice uh, rather than necessarily theory um one reason for this being that i find kind of increasingly that there's sort of a palpable time lag if you will between how quickly the academic discourse develops and how quickly that is um, able to be implemented in practice Um, in the sense that while certain things have already been long kind of intellectually deconstructed and rethought, um, we still face a lot of those old stumbling blocks on the ground. Um, So, I mean, just kind of an example, if we think of say feminism or uh, the, the, the feminist discourse, we can begin to sort of imagine or consider how a lot of those, you know, power structures have already been uh, deconstructed in intellectual thought and we are able to open up other channels and bring in other threads of history and voices and so forth. But And from that perspective, if you look at museum collections, for instance, it sort of becomes a given that yes, of course, they should be gender representative. Um, And yet they're not and have not been for a very long time and so when you uh, begin to um, in practice grapple with those questions of how to change that you are faced with kind of um, stumbling blocks that in many ways are pragmatic right Uh, but also with things like economic histories and cultural conditioning and family structures that all feed into the creation of the status quo and so I guess uh, that's sort of one of the things I find fascinating about uh, exhibition making and collecting practices that you get to kind of grapple with with the multiple layers of this and and another side of this is also when I uh, think of you know let's say old models that we deconstruct and uh, you know that we can see no longer work we don't necessarily always know what the new model will look like or should or could look like and how it would operate and so that again calls for a lot of Trial and error, including in the museum context. Um, So for instance, if we go with that example of of gender disparity, you know, we can't just kind of buy a bulk of work by women artists and plug it into a museum collection. Um, That could be a wonderful way to treat a symptom. But uh, when we begin to question why those voices were absent in the first place, of course, we, you know, Uh, come across uh, stumbling blocks like the gender pay uh, or the lack of adequate maternity leave, which is why a lot of women artists can't continue practicing after having a child, or family expectations for a woman to uh, take care of family and so forth. So there's, you know, actually trying to make those incremental changes reveals all of those interconnected networks of those challenges. So, um, before I speak about the two exhibitions, I would like to present you with two quotations um, to in some ways set the stage for our discussion later on. Uh, the first one, um, as cliches as it might be, is from Edward Said, and this is uh, him writing a tribute to Uh, the Egyptian film actress and dancer Tahiya Karioka after her passing in 1999 uh, where he was sort of lamenting the lack of uh, or the absence of a comprehensive archive of her filmography and he says, Uh All the Arab countries that I know don't themselves have proper state archives, public record offices, or official libraries any more than they have a decent control over their monuments, antiquities, the history of their cities, individual works of architectural art, like mosques, palaces, schools. This realization gives rise to a sense of a sprawling, teeming history off the page, out of sight and hearing, beyond reach, largely irrecoverable. Our history is mostly written by foreigners, visiting scholars, intelligence agents, while we do the living, relying on personal and disorganized collective memory, gossip almost, plus the embrace of a family or knowable community to carry us forward in time. So um, this was written roughly 20 years ago, and of course, uh, big strides have been made since then, especially in uh, Kind of uh the advent of a lot of new institutions in the early 2000s and like 2010s um but i think this shortage of not just organized archives but accessible archives are still reverberating in, in um, how we conduct our research now and how much of it is still based on oral histories which isn't you know a negative in and of itself uh, but does present quite a bit of a challenge in actually uh, finding information. Uh, The second quotation is from Selma Migdadi, who many of you may probably already know, but for those who might not, she is an art historian who began uh, deliberately working on organizing and documenting and interviewing artists from the region as early as the 1970s and was one of the first people to actually advocate for their inclusion in art museums. And this was uh, work she was doing in the US in the late 1970s, and she said she faced a lot of pushback from art museums and art institutions in in including, you know, art from the region into these places and in some ways kind of being faced with this idea that modernity didn't necessarily exist. In the region, and when I asked her, this is an email interview from 2018 when I asked her, you know what kind of responses did you get. She said that some uh, institutions said, but the art looks too Western, especially in response to abstract art or that it was not typical of what they conceived art from the region should be like non figurative more decorative less conceptual or with emphasis on influences from Islamic traditions. One exhibition that received interest from an American art institution was for a gender specific exhibition. However, the professor who responded recommended the exhibition for the university's ethnographic museum. On other occasions, I was referred to the ethnographic section of a natural history museum, which is, you know, quite ridiculous <laughs> uh, to think about now. And again, um, I would say that big progress has of course been made in, in the inclusion of uh, and the expansion of the understanding of modernity, that it's something that happened across the globe and had different manifestations in different geographies. However, um, I think again, the echoes of this reverberate and how exhibitions are um, made and uh, how acquisitions are made and also, how works are sort of framed in museums internationally, you know, even when they are included as part of sort of global modernism, they're still in some ways, you know, defined as like, you know, this is Arab modernism and Mexican modernism and so forth. Um, Whereas, you know, in some ways it, it poses the question of, well, shouldn't it just kind of be part of that entire pool? So the first show, I think this is, you know, probably a good time to segue into discussing that exhibition of abstract art that I worked on a year ago with uh, the Grey Art Gallery at NYU in, um, in New York. And um, the idea to focus on abstract art was actually in the works when I was brought um, onto the project. And um, so it was Lynn's idea, Lynn Gumpert, the director of the uh, Grey Art Gallery and also the co-curator of the exhibition. And in part, her interest in this um, area was sparked by an AMCA conference, um, which focused on abstraction, I believe it was in 2015, if I'm not mistaken. And so, you know, when I was told, you know, there's this idea, I thought, of course, yes, that's a great, that's a very interesting, thing to explore. And so the following year Lynn and I spent some time in our uh, warehouse in Sharjah kind of going and sifting through the physical collection and making a preliminary selection. And so this can already probably tell you or be be kind of telling off the very problematic nature, the challenges of studying abstraction across different contexts and specifically in the non West where As we were going uh, through the collection in, in, in trying to make that, you know, first to select a starting point from which to bounce off of into our research, we singled out those works that to us looked abstract or kind of fit our understanding as to what abstract art is or should be or should look like. And we almost used the objects. As a launch pad and worked our way backwards in then delving into the histories of the distinct art movements and and artists and schools and so forth and, of course, as we collected our. um, You know, literature lists and kind of reading lists most things that uh, we were able to find on modern abstract art were, of course, things that had to do with. Uh, European art, and North American art, and specifically linking um, the term abstraction to that very specific moment in early 20th century European history with artists like Kandinsky in particular, who is often credited with like being the first one. <laughs> um, but, you know, others like Mondrian and Malevich and others. And so as we began researching the objects that we had, um, you know, uh, at the Bargiel collection, we, of course, where we discovered the very uh, multiple kind of layered histories and questions and intellectual trajectories that these artists were on that did not necessarily originate from the understanding of abstraction as we had been trained in it in um, North American institutions, which both Lynn and I have been. And so we kind of arrived at this point where while we started out with an objective to explore abstraction. We couldn't but begin poking holes in that very term and that very paradigm of abstract art and abstraction and what it means in different contexts and how it is to be understood and whether or not it is even applicable to the object that we had on our hands. So for instance, you know, if you have a work that is inspired by a transcendental Sufi experience or something that is based off of uh, you know, symbols or alphabets, be they Arabic or Tifina. Um, Can those things which are not already, which aren't present as physical objects in the real world, can they be abstracted? So a lot of these questions began cropping up and in some ways, you know, we can begin to redefine or um, in some ways give new meaning to that term abstraction. But also the question was, well, if it doesn't apply art historically, if it um, connotes something else, should we be using it in the first place? And so, for instance, some of the things um, that we were looking at, you know, the, of course, the Casablanca School, which again, uh, maybe many of you are already familiar with, um, where they rethought educational models, uh, you know, their curriculum, and for instance, began looking back at pre-colonial histories like Amazigh objects and Islamic objects and things like woodworking and metalworking and formulating um, a new modern language. So when we look at, things as you can see on the page on the right, which, you know, those black and white compositions, one can sort of begin to maybe call them op art, which had developed earlier around the 1940s in Europe, but, but they're not right. Um, So, in kind of delving into the specifics of these contexts, one begins to question, you know, what words are actually applicable for the discussion of certain things. Um, this is a work by a Palestinian artist, uh, just as another example of the same thing where he uses Arabic uh, letter forms um, sort of calligraphy to create these abstract geometric compositions and the grid and uh, mathematics were, of course, also very much present in the conception of European modernism. But if we look at Kamal, his childhood was spent copying the mosaic patterns on the Dome of the Rock facade as well as being trained by a an icon painter in Jerusalem, Khalil Halabi, who trained him in the Byzantine tradition of icon painting, which again was very much based on grids. So the lineages of references are actually located along very different lines for, for these artists that we all group kind of into under this one big umbrella of abstract art. Um, I will, in the interest of time, just jump into the discussion of Um, the next exhibition on uh, Baya Mahideen. So Baya was born in 1931 in Algiers, and she had quite an unusual and interesting personal um, story and biography, which in many ways sometimes almost kind of like overshadows her work and her artistic practice. she she was orphaned at a very young age. She was only 5 years old and was subsequently raised by her grandmother who worked at a rose nursery that was owned by a French woman called Marguerite Benhura who was married to an Algerian qadi or judge and um, she was noticed by Marguerite It's sort of making these little figurines out of clay and making drawings out of the flower petals and so forth. And Marguerite, who herself was uh, an amateur painter and uh, what I guess could be described as an intellectual. I mean, she worked as an archivist for a a charities bureau uh, and also had a big library and, uh, you know, a lot of work by European modernists in her homes, particularly French modernists. And so she offered to take Baya in, and uh, this is actually a, a part of her biography that is quite hazy. In that, you know, we don't necessarily know if it was a formal adoption. It seems like it was not because Baya did keep her last name. There are some accounts who suggest that she was taken in, not uh, you know, as a helper. In the house. However, uh, we have a video interview with her from 1993 that Salwa Migdadi conducted with her in Algeria, where she does refer to Marguerite as mother. And, you know, it's, it seemed to me at least that she spoke quite fondly um, of her and, uh, you know, basically said that she encouraged her painting and so forth when she was a child. So, this was around 1942 when when she was taken in by marguerite and in 1945 um the french art dealer amy Macht travels to algeria and uh, he is introduced to baya by jean perissac and again is also very taken by her work so when marguerite moves back to france taking baya with her uh, she's actually introduced to the parisian art scene and in the summer of 1947 uh, is included in a surrealist exhibition at the Macht Gallery and the same year uh, in November uh, she gets a solo exhibition uh, which is where this photograph was shot uh, for an article in uh, French Vogue where they kind of wrote a story of her being like almost the Cinderella figure. (laughs) So she did make an quite a splash, um, let's say in the uh, European avant-garde scene. but of course looking back now at the kind of accounts that were written about her and her work and life, uh, we begin to recognize you know just how kind of orientalizing they were and that you know she was seen alongside the kind of good quality of her work. Um, she was also regarded for being quote unquote self-taught artists, which again can be understood in many ways and is in many ways a misnomer for her, um, being a very young female artist from a North African colony and so forth. So, you know, she was called things like a breath of fresh air and and, and things like this. So in uh, examining her work This is actually one of the earliest pieces we have in the exhibition. It's uh, number 1940, but it's actually an erroneous (laughs) uh, numbering. It was made in 1945. And uh, that was the only period when she actually painted uh, figures Kind of caught in a moment of horror. So you can see here a woman with her mouth agape and kind of her eyes uh, modeled in the shape of little faces. And um, it, it can be, you know, sort of suggested that it was probably in response to the massacres that were happening in Algeria in 1945 um, by the hands of the uh, the French army. However, um, 1947 onwards, you know, when she had that exhibition, the her entire kind of perspective changed to a very, let's say, joyful. <laughs> Uh, renditions where she would paint fantastical creatures, some of which you can see in these pictures, um, butterflies, vases of fruit, and so forth. Around the same time, in 1948, she was invited to work in a ceramic studio and, and a residency uh, by the madura studio in the south of France, uh, where her studio was located kind of really close to Picasso's. And again, the myth has it that they became friends and you know had couscous together and like basically developed a working friendship. But even that period is very poorly documented. And so it's kind of almost hearsay and, and, and little bits and pieces from here and there. This sculpture, um, which is part of the exhibition is untitled and undated, but uh, we assume that it probably came from that period between 48 and 52 when she when she practiced in the ceramic studio. So just to run you very quickly through a small selection of her work, which is part of the exhibition, Uh, there are recurrent motifs that she worked on um, throughout her, uh, throughout her career, you know, things like birds, for example, fish, um, butterflies, um, music and musical instruments, which was, of course, inspired by her husband. So she got married in 1953. And Moved back to Algeria with her husband who was a musician, he specialized in Andalusian music and uh, you know this marked kind of the point at which she became interested in musical instruments. And, of course, the figure of the woman, which is kind of the thread that ties everything together so she actually never painted men in her work only women and sometimes women with children which again is an interesting thing because she began painting them long before she herself became a mother so this example for instance is from 1947 when she was only 16 years old um, and was also part of that exhibition in paris so those of you who might have read you know at least a little bit in bio would probably have noticed that she has so many different labels that are often attached to her whether it's surrealism or art naive or this idea of self-taught, which uh, isn't necessarily true. She wasn't taught formally, but she was very well aware of European modernism, right? She kind of had those works around her at home and uh, was introduced to um, a lot of those artists in Paris. Um, She also, of course, carried through the traditions and things she saw in Algeria as part of kind of the the, the Algerian, the Arab, the Amazigh, the Islamic um, heritage and traditions and all of that begins to come across um, in her work. But she is in fact, you know, very difficult to place and This is still also from that same interview that Salwa conducted in 1993 with Malika Ba'agdallah, who is um, an an art curator and historian, also cultural practitioner, who was there to help Salwa with some of the translations and just to make arrangements and actually be able to access Vaya because she was a very reclusive person. And she says here that that Baya couldn't find her place in any of those art historical groups and that she evolved in parallel in an autonomous, independent, solitary manner because she had another kind of life. Um, and she says she has been free ever since the 1930s. So this is something I've been pondering about and I wondered what she means and whether perhaps she, you know, she's referring to the fact that Baya never really had to engage with the nationalist struggle in the same ways that some of the artists who who stayed back in Algeria did. Um, and she says that the ways to analyze her work have not been studied yet. Her art can be characterized in a thousand ways. So in other words, it's uh, she's basically saying, you know, it, it can be categorized in, into anything. Um, and Baya, I think herself was very aware of kind of the idiosyncratic nature of her work, which is why she came up with this term for herself. She called she called her work via-ism, you know, as opposed to any other kind of ism <laughs> that she didn't want to be attached to her work. And what is interesting is that it's not only her practice in the, in the network or constellation of other artists that was difficult to place or box in, but it's even her own kind of body of work, the, the almost six decades of her production don't necessarily have distinct periods as a lot of artists often do, or you don't see a very clear evolution of a, of a style or technique or a particular approach or even subject matter. So the only things that we were able to note um, as we were working on the exhibition are, her earlier works, um, she was a little more open towards using kind of pastel Uh, colors and and, and muted palettes, which wasn't the case uh, later on. Of course, the musical instruments only came in after 1953, when she got married, and that the scale of her work actually increased um, in the 1960s, particularly after the, the, the War of Independence had ended. So this is one of the largest works in the exhibition from 64. Um, so, you know, those are kind of the the few things, let's say trends or, or, um, or developments that we were able to note as being consistent. But other than that, she kind of defies even the categorization of just parts of her own practice. Now, the, the thing with Baye, you know, she, she was very reclusive, as I said, and she wasn't, um, ever kind of overtly politically outspoken. Um, and the only manifesto or text that her name appears on um, as a signatory is the al Manifesto uh, published in 1967 with other signatories like Shukri Mesli and Denise Martinez and others. And um, again, you know, here one begins to wonder why <laughs> she was invited to, to be uh, part of the collective. Again, some scholars have suggested that she wasn't really an active participant um, in the group, but was perhaps approached uh, for her kind of double cachet of both being a woman artist, but also someone who has already achieved great recognition in Europe. Um, and had those names of, you know, André Breton and Picasso attached to her. So those could have been some of those, um, you know, motivating forces for, for inviting her to become part of this uh, collective. So, you know, in thinking about kind of terminology and um, art historical frameworks, particularly those that are kind of predicated on a European enlightenment, I think by is an excellent example. <laughs> um, she's in some ways, I guess, kind of like a microcosm of what it is like to study art or, or whatever it is in other geographies, right? So when you have a particular model that already has its categories and, and names and things of that nature, which don't always apply, I think it, um, it's, it becomes very evident in the work of someone like Baya.
0: Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. To see related slides, please visit our webpage, www.themagribpodcast.com. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themagribpodcast.com as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcast, like our Facebook page, Magreb in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the CMAT newsletter at www.sematmagreb.org, or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Magreb Studies. See you soon for new episodes.